Hello and welcome to this professional practice podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we'll be looking at the issue of the viva, what it is, what it isn't, and what to look out for. And to help me navigate the subject, I'm joined by a stellar cast, Paul Crosby, Head of the Part 3 Programme at the AA, Wendy Colvin, Programme Leader in Part 3 at the University of the West of England in Bristol, and Tony Clelford, Head of Design Practice and Part 3 at Greenwich University in London. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much indeed for your time. So the starting point is a general question we always ask, which is how you got to where you are. Uh, so effectively, it's uh, how you ended up teaching Part 3. Give us a potted history of your long lives. Wendy, a youthful life. Sorry, Wendy. <laughs> so thank you very much, Austin, and thank you for this opportunity. Um, I started teaching part three. I, well, actually, I kind of merged into teaching part three. My teaching career started at Portsmouth um, University, helping with the PEDRs. Um, and I got into that because um, because I did my part three at Kingston, as it happens. And, uh, and and one of the one of the peers on the course worked at Portsmouth and she thought as a newly qualified architect um, with a child in tow, because when I did my part three interview, I was nine months pregnant. So there's something for any student to consider, you know, life happens, you know, irrespective of what's happening in your career. So it was a really useful way of um, using my recent experience um, at part three and my new qualification and helping others into the profession, um, whilst also earning a little bit of extra money while setting up my fledgling practice with baby in tow. So all of it happening all together at once there for me. And you didn't get any sympathy boards for your pregnancy? Uh, the, the examiners, um, their jaws kind of hit the floor when I walked into the room, I think, because I, I was nine months pregnant. And I'm sure they had been told I was pregnant, but I don't think they had been told how pregnant I was. <laughs> Very good. OK, well, Paul, give us a potted history. Thank you, Austin. Yes, I joined the Architectural Association in late 2017 to head up the professional practice programme. Before then, I was teaching full time at NTU, Nottingham Trent University, or as I prefer to call it, Trent Polytechnic, for a couple of years in a number of roles there, including heading up the master's and, and teaching uh, management practice in law. Uh, so my academic career or life has been, I would say, relatively short. It's just the past five or six years or so. Prior to that, if we're going backwards and allows me a little bit little moment to reflect. I worked in practice for over 30 years, um, including working for a practice called Fitzroy Robinson for a number of years, uh, set up an office in Leipzig in Germany for, for two years, ran that. So that was really quite um, an interesting and important experience for me before then moving on to senior roles in the offices of David Chipperfield, Zaha Hadid, and then Martha Schwartz. She's an American uh, stroke international uh, landscape architect. I would say why, you ask why, professional practice. I suppose in all of those roles, I was in a mentoring role in encouraging and working with lots of young people in those practices. And I could see that they weren't coming to practice with much knowledge of management practice and law. All of, I can say without exception, all of the people, the senior people and the principals in those offices in which I've, I've mentioned, all appreciate the subjects which we teach, the professional criteria and all of the important issues of um, professional practice, resource management, QA, design processes, contracts, fees. So I suppose there was a natural segueing into becoming a full-time academic. 
so that's where I am now. Very good. Tony? I suppose I came to Part 3 from a point of view of complete ignorance. I had worked in practice for 15 years, and during that time, I learned nothing about fee calculations, practice management, job getting, or practice marketing. It was one of those things that, obviously, it was the choice of practice that, I was, that I'd worked in, I suppose, or it was the time. But it's, it, those were things which were not talked about to people who were actually, you know, on the shop floor, so to speak. So what changed for me was that I saw an ad in building design for Paul Nicholson's insight into architectural management. And I rang him up and I said, I want to do the course. And he said, it's full. Even if your practice sent a check tomorrow, it's still full. And I said, I'm paying for it myself. He said, do you want the diploma? And I said, bugger the diploma. He said, great, come along. And that was the start. And that led me to becoming the third only architect to get onto the MBA program at London Business School. I didn't finish it because I still don't understand accountancy and a little thing called a recession got in the way. But it strikes me then and now that an architect's skills have got a lot of business content in them. All of that creativity and that, that flexibility of managing complex situations that we do, we're really good at that, but we don't somehow we don't put it in a business context. And it has to be said of the three architects, me being the third one, architects uh, who did the MBA programme, I'm the only one who's still in architecture. And that says something about the profession. So that led me, when the opportunity to teach part three came along, I leapt at it. I bit the hand off the person who was offering it to me and they were expecting me to refuse it. I grabbed it because as far as I was concerned, it was a chance to redesign the architectural profession. No small uh, ambition. That's what I like. But uh, if I'd achieved it or not, Austin. But No, no. Well, we never achieve anything, do we? But we're we're (laughs) aiming for it. But you kind of hinted at it there. I think while we're talking about management, you were talking about business. Uh, do you bring a specialism? Are you a jack of all trades or do you bring a particular specialism to the part three? I think I'm a jack of no trades, to be honest. If I've got any talent at all, it's listening to one student telling me about what they do in their practice and then feeding that back to somebody in a different sort of practice who does something completely different and say, OK, well, how do you guys do that? And that's that's the best bit about part three, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you're just you're. My jaw and the jaw of everybody else in the room is constantly hitting the floor with what you hear. That's true. That's true. Uh, Wendy, any thoughts on your, your, your specialisms? I think professional studies has become my specialism. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've been, I've been teaching since 2000, really. So it was, you know, I've been teaching it. You know, Portsmouth was all professional studies and then and did a spell at the Bartlett for about five years, which was entirely part three. But moving to UE, you know, it, it allowed me, which was 2007, it allowed me to go back to designing a little bit, you know, because um, and exploring design and studio with the students. So that was quite interesting. I was I was working across the school. But actually, as now that I'm full time and I have been full time for a few years now, it's it's really professional studies is it just because of the numbers of students we have and and the and and teaching all the way across one two and three but the thing what's interesting about what I do which is different from what I think a lot of my other APSA you know the other professional studies advisors do is I'm I think UE is quite unique in having a built and natural environment department still although we're we're moving into this school college um, structure as opposed to faculty department and we have all the disciplines under one roof. So we, we've got a truly multidisciplinary approach to our teaching, which I think is really very interesting. And, and, um, and I, I feel that it's, it's quite unique. It feels very special. And so I try very hard to immerse myself in that, you know, cross-team, collaborative 
cross-cultural, dare I say it, manner of working, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, what about yourself? Um, I think it's a inevitably a very interesting question, Austin, the nature of specialism. And I think this is one of the issues that's um, confronting sounds too aggressive, but is and should be addressed by the profession currently. My particular interest, maybe not specialism, is business, ethics, professionalism, where we are as a profession. I would never hold myself out or claim to be a specialist in planning law, building regulations, procurement. It's too big and complex. And, and that's why on our particular course, I, I'm very happy and pleased to say that we engage specialist people to give those to give those talks i was um i mentioned earlier that i worked in in germany i for some reason i i decided to learn german on a friday evening at the goethe institute so i trotted along there at the end of a very busy week at six o'clock stayed there till 9 30 every friday learned german for a couple of years and then was asked to run a set up and run a practice in germany one man i'll name him nicholas thompson from fitzroy robinson gave me a really good piece of advice Paul, you don't know everything. Your field of vision is very narrow. Employ people who are better at things than you are. And I think that's stuck with me since then, Austin, is don't be afraid to acknowledge that you don't know everything. Okay, well, good good life advice. Would you say that applies in a viva? So let me just ask the question, which is the basis of the art viva or the professional interview, whatever you call it. And it's typically coming at the end of seven years of study, let's say although that may be changing, what would you say that the Viva is for? And are there certain things which, you know, are open to be discussed and things which maybe a student would be better off not mentioning? I'll jump in there, if that's all right, Austin. I think, so what I say to our students, what is the Viva for? I think it's multifaceted. I think it has more than one purpose. I mean, ultimately, the purpose is to determine whether or not the person in front of the examiners is a safe pair of hands and whether or not they meet the competency requirements set out in the criteria. But I think in terms of an academic assessment, it's doing more than that because they'll have had their written work that they're submitting. And so the VIVA acts as an opportunity for them to redeem themselves with any mistakes or gaps that were presented in their written work. It allows them to explore their ambition for themselves. You know, what do they want to do after um, part three? And to, you know, to begin to think about the rest of their lives, which they haven't really had a chance to do up to now. So that's that's certainly what we say to our students about, you know, redeeming the work, about being able to discuss the gaps in their experience, about demonstrating that they meet the criteria and um, and forward ambition. Okay, so just very quickly, is that is that the personal development plan? Just to, just to make these things very boringly formal, you know, everything has a name these days, but what you just described about what they want to achieve in their career, is that, is that a personal development plan or is that bigger than that? I think it's both, actually. I think, um, what, you know, certainly one of the tasks we get our students to do as part of the career evaluation is to complete a CPD plan for their first year as a qualified architect. But some students will, will move beyond that and they'll do a whole five-year plan. I had a student, for example... She and another Part 3 student on the course at the time were working in a very small practice and the director was going to be retiring in the next five to six years. And um, she rocked up to one of the tutorials to say, we're going to be given the practice and we're going to be directors in five years time. And I just thought, whoa, you know, what are your examiners going to make of this? Because, you know, that's either going to be they're going to either welcome that with open arms or they're going to be terribly frightened. But she she, she was very clever. She said, well, I, I know I don't know everything. 
So going back to Paul's point about you don't know everything. Um, I know I don't know everything. So she did develop a five-year plan, which looked really very convincing <laughs> about undertaking management courses, about, you know, positioning herself in, in that position with clients, you know, and, and winning work and fee proposals and the like. And it, it was, and, and it had multi multiple strands to it, that five-year plan. It wasn't, it was, it was, you know, there was the client aspect, there was um, the employer aspect, you know, she had thought it through very, very carefully. So it was, it was more than just thinking about the next year, it was thinking about the next five to 10 years. Paul, the, the original question, I, I went off on one, but the original question was really what it's for, what the Viva is for. Yes, um, Viva interview, whatever terminology we care to use for me, it's a professional conversation we use that expression a lot at the AA and and elsewhere I don't want to, I don't want to treat that too lightly it's a test it isn't it is part of the examination process and as as Wendy has said it's the culmination of the written papers and the whole process that leads to that final moment before um, hopefully passing and access to the register I I say conversation because it's our job as examiners to somewhat calm down any nerves, address any anxieties. Um, one expects the candidate to be nervous. I think that's perfectly understandable if they are. But it's an opportunity for candidates and somewhat for examiners to bring everything together after the written papers and to, yes, test knowledge and understanding, but also to um, discuss and test candidates' ability to be reflective, critical practitioners. We encourage our candidates to be to think of examiners as quasi-clients um, and to engage with them, show some personality and character, and ultimately be uh, reflective and offer professional advice. All right, can I just pick you up on the word test, even though in common usage, obviously, you're, you're testing their knowledge and everything. But obviously, very often we try to tell our assessors that, that they're not testing them in the sense of asking them what is clause 6.2 in the contract, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not an examination, verbal examination. How would you, do you make a differentiation yourself? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't say test. I mean, in no way would we ask what we would, commonly called closed questions. I mean, we ask uh, scenario-based questions. I think they are by far and away the very best way to engage in and conduct um, a professional interview. Um, test, examine, assess. I don't know. Let, let's not get too wrapped up in the semantics or, or the words there. But I think it is, as Wendy, I think, said, we have to be aware of competencies. And, and to ensure that our candidates or any candidate that I'm examining elsewhere has a base knowledge that meets the criteria. But more importantly, I would say, has the ability to apply that knowledge, that understanding and show their experience to bring these things together, to assimilate all of these things and, and give their opinion. OK, Tony, how about yourself? I, I think uh, Paul and Wendy have covered a lot of it. I, I think there's I mean, one thing particularly with courses which are exam-based, you are often presented as an examiner with a student who has, if you like, managed to, you know, a bit like a sniper, knock off the individual targets of each exam question, and they pass this question about X or Y or whatever. But what you, you want once they, they walk into the Viva room to meet you is 
you want to show if they can put it all together, if they can take all these disparate things and put them together into a coherent approach, uh, if they can balance and juggle all these things, because invariably, you know, professional judgment is not 100% always pointing in the same way. If it was, you wouldn't need the professional. So it's have they got that ability to put it all together to make sense of it all? And from that point of view, I suppose, one of the things that they're really doing is reassuring the examiners. Okay, let me ask the next question, which may be just a flip side of what you just, you just said, but maybe you can pad it out, which is really, for the students listening, what do students always do wrong? What do they get wrong? You've skipped an important question there, which is what are the what are the examiners looking for before before we get to what the students do wrong? I mean, what I'm looking for from candidates are our perspective, you know, on themselves, on the practice, on the project, on the profession. Ideally, I would like a wise head on young shoulders. I would like context, 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 them to be able to put themselves, their experience their practice, you know, their job in a, a much bigger context and explain that to me to show that they understand that. And I'd also like them to have their own opinions. Quite often you can be talking to candidates and it's it's as if they're only saying what they think they ought to say or they feel they've been told to say or whatever. I really like a candidate who's got their own opinions and will enter into a discussion. That's not necessarily political. That's no, 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 professional issues. So the flip side of that in terms of, of what they what they don't what they get wrong all the time is that you find candidates who aren't resilient when what they're saying is questioned. They can describe what happened, but they can't say why. And they certainly can't say what could have been done instead. You know, if it is, it's at a very general level, rather than the okay, what could you have done instead? Not much good at answering that question quite often. Very good. Okay. So uh that's fair enough. Paul, in terms of the question, there's, there's two now rolling together, which is basically uh, what do you look for in a vibe and really what do students get wrong? Again, it might be the opposite of what you say, first of all. <laughs> well, the uh, taking the first question first, what, what am I as an examiner looking for? Every, everything that Tony said, so that goes without saying. Also, in addition, I would say honesty, never lie, never tell any untruths, however small, uh, an appreciation of process above all. I would say I'm looking for preparation, that a, that a candidate has really taken the trouble to prepare, revise, study, know their stuff, and be prepared to show their personality and character. Ultimately, everybody's different. And I think there's something important in what Tony's just said. Sometimes we, we sit in the exam room and we feel that a candidate is trotting out the the lines that they think we want to hear. And they're normally sometimes a bit anodyne, a bit bland and a bit expected. Whereas I really do appreciate personality and character to come across, underpinned by everything we've been talking about, knowledge and understanding and so on. But often I prepare copious notes in advance, having read the written submissions, case studies, career appraisals and so on. The very best Vivers, professional interviews for me are those where I can very early in the interview put my notes to one side and conduct that professional conversation. And, and it doesn't have to be stilted by ticking boxes. It really does become uh, a getting to know you type of ex exercise. Very useful. Okay, thanks. And Wendy? I, I mean, I think it's all of these things that Tony and Paul has set out. I mean, that preparation is a big one for me as well. And, and I think I say to our students 
you've got to read through the work that you've submitted and make notes on it. And it does surprise me when when I've conducted interviews and the students clearly haven't prepared. They clearly haven't read through their work again since they submitted their written work. And, you know, that's just fundamental. Prepare for the interview is really very important. But one of the things that I think I'm looking for as an examiner is confidence and assuredness in the candidates. And, and I mean confidence, not cockiness, let's be clear, because I think there is a big distinction between the two. And I think with, you know, one of the things that I think part three gives to students is that increased confidence in their own abilities. And, and those that have really learned a lot through the process and have gained a lot, they, they, they do become more confident. And that confidence does kind of resonate through the interview, resonates through their answers, even if they don't know the answers. You know, to have that confidence to be able to say, do you know, I don't really know. Are you talking about this? And to be able to, it requires confidence to enter into that discussion that Paul wants. So so that answer that says, um, I don't know the answer, but I know where to find it, uh, is a pretty standard one, isn't it? That that never seemed to work for me. But I also was going to flip the question <laughs> to, to, to ask you a very, very briefly off-piste question as to whether you think these problems that you're identifying, you know, maybe not doing enough research maybe not doing enough preparation not having enough confidence or being technical in the approach to answers has that changed over the years or is that a fairly consistent thing that you've seen forever and i know you you've you've already explained that you haven't been in this game forever but in your experience yes i think i think it is something that we would expect have expected to see for you know for as long as i've been involved in this I think that has waxed and waned over the years, particularly the confidence. And I think it depends on what, what's happening economically, perhaps. You know, COVID, I think COVID has really knocked quite a few students' confidence. And I think because of that, it has required special care through the tutorial process to try and rebuild re- rebuild that some confidence in some of our students. Um, and also to impress upon them the importance of being in the office to, to being in the office to learn by osmosis, to be able to ask questions. I think that's really very important to, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. There is no such thing as, you know, we all know there's no such thing as the wrong question, but students don't often have the confidence to do to do that, to ask the right, to ask any question. I was only simply asking because um, I've noticed that as competence has become a word which we all have to throw around, I've noticed uh, a lack of competence growing in the industry. Um, I just wondered whether you had a, a similar observation or whether you thought you could understand why that was happening, if you agree I, with it. I, I think it's really confidence definitely is what we want and what we're looking for. But I think architecture is at a really interesting point that there we could you know, probably agree fundamentals about what we would want from a professional advisor generally, what we want from an architect. You know, Paul talked about honesty, for example. Yeah, absolutely. But then we have architects who are operating in different procurement routes. That means they've got different responsibilities to different clients with different sorts of agendas. And how those eternal values hit that particular situation is where the conversation gets very interesting. And for me, it's always important that the student understands the context that they are in. So you can have the conversation about how does that land with you? but that they can also talk about how it would apply if they were in a slightly different situation. And that's when the scenario questions are coming. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the case study, we've already mentioned it, case study 
is a massively important aspect of the Viva. I just wondered if you could explain any general rules about how you handle it in your university. I know that we all maybe tackle it in a slightly different way. Uh, and you know, what part does the Viva play in, in all Vivas? So there's a specific and there's a general comment, I suppose. I'll start if that's all right, Austin. Yeah, I think please, please. The, case, the case study, uh, when, when we set out what part three is for our students, we break it down each of the assessment elements. And, and, and I talked through what I think is the feature or the aim of each of the assessment elements. And, and, and I think the case study is the single element that allows them to demonstrate how a project should be managed from beginning to end. There is no other element um, in, the, in the assessment you know, suite that allows them to demonstrate that on a single project. At UE, we do only allow single projects. We don't allow these so-called split case studies where they can talk about two projects and one case study. We want them to focus on a single case study. And because I don't really want the examiners having to get their head around two different projects for the same student, that's part of the intention, but also so that the student has enough word count space in which to develop their understanding of a single project and, and do that thoroughly. I think the, with the case study, Another important feature with that is that is that they get that stage five experience within that case study, because I think that's what examiners are looking for. I had hoped that it wouldn't be necessary, but I now tell students if they don't have it, if it's not in their case study, they're going to fail and they need to defer until they get that experience, because actually the case study makes up about 20 to 25 minutes of the 45 minute interview. So it's a significant chunk of time in the, in the interview. Um, so it does need to be quite thorough, quite well written, well analyzed with the student understanding as, as Tony and Paul have both said, you know, all of the whys, why did this happen? What would you have done differently? How do you differ from what your practice has done on this project? Very good. Nice to hear some harsh uh, lecturing tones there. I like that. Uh, <laughs> Paul, any thoughts? Well, I, I think I'm in a rather curious position at the at the AA because we don't have a case study as part of our assessment process. So I, I'm going to say that um, I don't miss it. We don't want it. We'll never introduce a case study as part of our assessment process. Um, I think I think Wendy's probably hinted at it, but I'll be explicit. I think the efficacy of the case study is being lost over time. And maybe one of the underlying themes in this conversation is the role of the architect and the, the lack of specialization and the lack of procurement experience. We can debate that now or maybe another time. That's a big subject. That said, I mean, I obviously examine elsewhere, which I read some fabulous case studies. I, I do agree with Wendy. I think the shadowed case study is a nigh on, if I can be absolutely frank, pointless exercise to me because it is the assimilation of experience and reflective critical judgment and best practice proposals. So if a candidate hasn't worked on a any project, any part of any project, I, I that concerns me greatly. Yeah, I think that's enough. Actually. All right. <laughs> Tony? I think sort of reverse engineering it. The, the ideal case study, I suppose, is a project that you've been involved with right the way through, where you've had some degree of responsibility and uh, control even. And that tends to favour small residential projects, sometimes retail projects. You know, that not many students are, are in that business. Uh, if they've got the opportunity, they should certainly be talking about later stage experience, as Wendy suggested. But that's about it. 
they definitely Good. should be doing the the two projects they definitely if they can possibly avoid it be doing the shadowing because both of those are deep holes which are quite difficult for you to dig yourself out of before you even start sorry just quite quickly say in terms of you know, lots and lots of people are working on dnb projects yeah I, I i think that's okay um i i think even the, if they're not even if they're not innovated even if they don't get to see on site it's all about knowing what your role is isn't it i mean i think you know, and, and what other people's roles are on the project. So it's it's having that rounded view of the project context of the various disciplines involved and what everybody's doing and how that interaction works and being able to criticise that and criticise constructive criticism. We're not talking about personal, we're talking about behaviour and we're talking about, you know, and actions. So, sorry, Tony, I, I might have talked over you there. No, I, I think you're right, but I, I think it's, it's not a question that these, you know, these things don't matter if you're doing design and building, you're not innovative, whatever, you know, you are in that situation and you have to sort of make the best analysis and study of it as, that you can. But obviously, in that case, it behoves you to try and address the, the, the bits of the project that you have not seen, that you don't have control, to try and build that bigger picture. The candidate who is, you know, in a particular pigeonhole, in a particular silo, and that is the extent of their knowledge and their vision, is a candidate who's not going to do very well in the Bible at all. I'm very mindful of the fact, Tony, you're going to have to leave us uh, very soon. So let's just whiz through a couple of quick questions. Uh, one is asking whether there's anything impressive that you've seen students do in their hand-ins, whether it's a volume or, or whatever it might be. And, and I'm going to volunteer one very quickly to say that I stole one of uh, Tony, which is the Fennec diagram, which he uses at Greenwich, which I think is spectacularly useful. It's kind of a linear graph, if you like, that on the x-axis you have the timeline, and on the y-axis you have the, the um, RIBA work stages, and you chart your experience. So it's effectively a way of assessors not plowing their way through all the PDRs. You can kind of have visual representations. So anyway, this is just a question about whether there's any tricks of the trade that you've armed them with, or whether you think that there's anything that you've seen students do that you want to share? Well, I'll come back with the compliment to um, Kingston in that case, Austin, and to you to say that um, one of the things that I noticed about the career evaluation at Kingston was an examiner there was that it wasn't just looking backwards, it was always looking forward. So we nicked that idea. That gave it a better name, of course, but that's you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a fundamental marketing skill, isn't it? Take the competitor and product and then give it a better name. But that's actually because I think it helps students consider their position. You know, am I actually on track to where I want to be? And part three is really one of the almost the final point where they're going to have the opportunity to take stock, you know, because they can position themselves uh, with regards to the course, to their tutors, and with their peers, and just say, actually, you know, given all of those sort of landmarks, milestones around me, you know, am I actually going in the right direction? Am I in the right place? For many students, I know it's one of those things that, you know, they're so focused on finishing their part three, but actually having a bit of the course which makes them think about what they're going to do afterwards is really, really useful. Very good. Any thoughts on this? I think students need to think very carefully about us being a visual profession. You know, I think because a lot of the work is written, I think they sometimes maybe lose sight of the fact that um, the examiners and, and their part three tutors are, aren't just wrapped up in a, a written text world that, you know, we are architects and, and we're, we're visual beasts and we like to see 
we like to see images and we like to see diagrams. And I think some students, you know, were far more aware of neurodiversity now than we were 20 years ago. And, and a lot of our architecture students are, are dyslexic. So when they struggle to put words into text and thoughts from their head into a, a document, you know, I often suggest, why don't you try diagramming it? Why don't you try doing a, a timeline? You, if you don't know how to compare what did happen, you know, on this project against a number of other procurement routes, put it into a table and do a direct compare and contrast. So I think there are, you know, the Fennec diagram is a really useful diagram as an illustration, but I think there are other illustrations they can also think about using to explain not only their experience, but the project and to help them sort their thoughts, even if they don't end up in the final document. It's a very, they're very useful tools and devices to help them organize what they think about the project or their own experience. I think that's very useful. Having seen a couple of volumes, which have just been A4, 12 point font aerial, uh, why on earth they've lost the belief that they're in a visual profession, I, I, I can't fathom. Paul, any? No, completely endorse all of that. I, and, and it's worth restating diagrams, diagrams, diagrams. I am a case study tutor at, at Westminster. And that's the first thing I say in the group tutorial. Let's, for the next tutorial, produce some diagrams. Your timeline, your career, the office structure, everything, diagram it. And I suppose that's in reaction also to the point, and I'm going to massively generalize here by saying that architects cannot write. So I would also add to that, that um, in written submissions, I would encourage all candidates to be as succinct and to the point using plain English and not architectural jargon or archi speak as much as they possibly can. Just write with clarity. In the last month, the run up to Aviva, What's the what advice? What what I mean? What should they read? What should they be doing? One is just to have a general feel about what is happening in the architecture and construction industries, so that they can actually you know cite examples about who's suing who, because they they can't present themselves as somebody who is just plugged into a, a particular pigeonhole and, and don't seem to think wiser. And then the obvious thing is to go through their case study again, preferably when they've locked it away for a month or so and it comes back to them fresh so they can rethink it all and see it anew. Yeah, very good. I think reading the architectural press is a very useful first stage, especially with all that's happening from you know from planning legislation all the way through the fire and building, you know, building safety, etc. Building magazine, the CIOP <laughs> websites and things like that, a newsletter just to get, you know, a perspective on construction and design, which is not an architect's perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, Wendy, any thoughts? I would I would encourage all candidates in the lead-in period up to the all to um, engage with their practice, maybe tap into project architects, colleagues to help them review their written submissions, likewise with their study groups, and to practice the the interview. There is such a thing as muscle memory, and I think the more times you do it, the more adept you'll be in the in the viva. Good. Wendy? I think all of those things, I think when our students submit, I suggest they take at least two or three weeks off of part three after they've submitted their written work. And um, and then, then when they come back to preparing for the interview, which they do need to prepare for it like they do prepare for a written exam, 
that they read through their work and and make notes all of their work including any other work that wasn't submitted you know whether it's an exam or or coursework I think in terms of the interview itself one thing that we haven't talked about is is how they prepare for being confident and I think the mock interview kind of thing is is really is is a good is a good thing to think about but um and and forgive me for this but um but to also think about what they're going to wear on the day because actually you know far too many of them will go out and buy a whole new suit or a whole new outfit and and they look absolutely uncomfortable when they arrive and I, I think you know what I'm really concerned about for my students is that they feel confident that they feel comfortable and they're confident and so you know I even say to them think very carefully about what you're wearing it needs to be professional it needs to be smart casual but also you need to be comfortable in it so don't wear, don't go and buy a new pair of shoes that you're going to be limping around in for example okay just for, just for listeners, I, I've got this on visual. I can see Wendy looking incredibly stylish at the moment. Paul is <laughs> in his best, Ben Sherman. Uh, and I'm looking uh, particularly slovenly uh, at the moment. But um, it's only it's only audio. So uh, one final question. Um, Tony has just had to leave us. But one final question. If you will indulge me, maybe you want to be a bit more uh, diplomatic about this. What do you think about the changes coming down the line from ARB, RIVA, um with validation and Kingston is going through validation at the moment um and, and its impact on, on professional bodies and employers and students what's what's your snapshot overview especially since you know you're you're being heavily involved in APSA Association of Professional Studies Advisors give us give us a few lines any thoughts don't be shy don't be shy go on Paul do you, do you have any thoughts <laughs> well look look Wendy you're far more um experience than me to to elucidate on this point let me just say if austin you say what's coming down the line i think if it were clearer what's coming down the line i'd be probably able to offer a more educated um uh, you know and considered opinion but frankly i've 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 read uh, a lot i've listened a lot and i'm still not sure what the what what is coming down the line in summary overall strategy i'd say the education of a young professional architect needs an overhaul. And if the ARB is saying that it's to address inclusivity, I, I don't believe that for one moment, the proposals, but I think that is an issue that needs to be addressed. I do believe that competencies need to be addressed. I do know that and believe that academia needs to get closer to the profession and the profession needs to get closer to academia so any vehicle in which that could happen i would say that has to be explored does it go far enough actually probably not i, th I think that there are other things that could be introduced but maybe not for this conversation since we're nearing the end of it but uh no very diplomatically put uh wendy anything to add or subtract i mean i think what do i think we don't know what's coming yet, do we? And and it's it's going to be you know at least September before we know, maybe even longer. I think it, it looks as though the desire is that um, there's an increase in competence before one joins the register. I don't think that the day job is going to change very much. I mean, obviously procurement and different contracts, those things come and go, and you know, and then we turn around and we find ourselves back where we started again. You know, it's cyclical, in other words. Um, so I think this, so the nature of what we do is designing buildings and having an involvement in that, you know, both from a, a physical, technical and cultural perspective. I don't think that's going to change. 
Um, I think what will change is regulation and, and you know, government regulation of, of the industry, which obviously it has direct access to the architects because of the Architects Act. And I think there is a political will to try and make sure that buildings are safer. Hopefully there's a political will to try to make sure that buildings are safer. And I think that is, um, I think that's what's coming in, in some of the, the, the new outcomes that we might be seeing in the, in the autumn. Okay. Uh, I could chip in and abuse my position as an impartial voice of reason and talk about the increased bureaucratization of uh, architecture and the interference by busybodies who don't know what they're talking about. But far be it for me to, uh, to say any of that. Right, that's the end of it. Thank you very much indeed. It's the end of this particular edition. Many thanks to Paul Crosby at the AA, Wendy Colgan at the UWE, and Tony Clouford from Greenwich University. My name is Austin Williams at Kingston University. And we all have slightly different approaches to part three, core structures, etc. So check all of them out and choose the one that suits you best. Uh, but wherever you are, you can listen to the archive on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify or wherever you get your podcast and listen to a wide range of professional matters and a great selection of speakers. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again at the next Professional Practice Podcast. Bye-bye.